Um, it's a special day. As, uh, as I came in and, and saw a lot of your faces, and uh, as we had the passing of the peace for about 15 minutes, uh, made me think that this is a little bit of what heaven will be like getting to see brothers and sisters from far and wide that we haven't seen perhaps in years, uh, get to hug their necks and ask them how they've been and tell them to fill us in on what's been going on. Um, it's, a sweet, it's a sweet morning, uh, but it's a bittersweet morning, as, we've, as everyone's been mentioning. Sweet to see one another, Sweet to remember what God has done in our lives and, and through this community, in this community. Um, it's time to give thanks, uh, but it's also sad to see a church close. A church that many in this room gave blood, sweat, tears, sleepless nights uh, to seeing come into existence. And so, uh, what do we do with these mixed emotions? What do we do with uh, the confusion, the anger, the sadness, the relief? Who knows what you're feeling this morning? Uh, What does the gospel have to say to us in these moments? Uh, Well, in my experience, and uh, what God has done in my life is that this is, these are actually the moments and the places where the gospel comes to life. It's in these moments that when we go to the scriptures and we beat on them and we shout at the Lord and we ask the tough questions that we realize that most of the Bible was written to people who were suffering, who were struggling in faith, who were crying out to the Lord, and the Lord met them. Uh, It's no surprise that, uh, well, it's often a surprise, but it has become less of a surprise that in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those of us who are mourning this morning, we have the promise that God will be with us and he will comfort us. Uh, And for that reason, we're looking at a passage in John chapter 12, um, it may be up here. You can follow along in your own Bible if you have one. John chapter 12, verses 23 to 26. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. And Jesus answered them, his disciples. He said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, uh, we ask that you would speak through your spirit to our hearts, each one of us, where we are. Show us what we need to see. Tell us what we need to hear. We ask for your comfort, your encouragement, your challenge. We ask it for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Well, this passage represents a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. You're probably familiar with the Gospels. Jesus, multiple times, says to his disciples, says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. But here, at this juncture, he says, his hour has come. Jesus now turns his face to the cross. Um, And he although he's told them multiple times that what this means is that he will uh, be arrested, he will be flogged, he'll be crucified and die, and then resurrections. His disciples never fully understood what he was saying, and so he explains it to them again, and he tells them why. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And we know now, and his disciples came to understand, that he was talking about himself and the metaphor of the seed that he was going to give his life on the cross. He was willingly going to die for the sins of the world and enter into the tomb. And on the third day, rise again to new life, bringing resurrection power, the kingdom of God, forgiveness of sins, the adoption of sinners into the family of God so that you and I, through faith in Christ, can now become beloved daughters and sons of the King. Hallelujah. This is the gospel. Amen? Amen. Amen. And as we said in the children's homily, the beauty and the power of the gospel is seen in this, that actually as, as Jesus preached his divine message, He knew that the help it could give was was severely limited. He knew that he needed to go to the cross. He needed to die for the sins of the world. And if he would do that, then the power of God would spread across the globe and throughout time as we sit here 2,000 years later gathered to worship this one Jesus of Nazareth. But the reason I chose this passage is because of what he says next. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. Jesus is making an immediate connection to his life and the pattern of his life, the pattern of death and resurrection, and he connects it to the life of his disciples. And what he says, in essence, is the pattern of my life will be the pattern of your life. If you are my followers, yes, you will experience resurrection life, but you will also experience death to the life you live in this world. This verse echoes what Jesus says in Matthew 16. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Explicitly saying the the form of the Christian life is a cruciform life. Paul writes in Romans 8 that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Jesus and Paul both connect his death and resurrection with our lives as disciples, that we too will experience many deaths and many 
resurrections, many and many, both. Paul Miller captures this idea beautifully in his book, The J-Curve, Dying and Rising with Jesus in Everyday Life, and I highly commend it to you. It's been invaluable to me in my own walk with the Lord over the last few years. It's a part of the gospel that we have often forgotten, rejected, wanted to look away from. We've imbibed the American dream of ever-increasing progress, ever-increasing success. When Jesus calls us into times of suffering for his good, and for the life he wants to bring to the world. And I would say it is in those places, the places of mourning and suffering, that God does his best and most powerful work in the world through his people. And uh, I can see some of the older people in the congregation nodding. It's okay, young people. You don't have to believe me today. You will believe me eventually. Uh, and it, I, it's taken me some hard knocks to, to believe, to confess, and even celebrate this truth. Because the truth is that our God is the God who brings life out of death. Or as the prophet Isaiah says, He gives to those who mourn a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint Spirit. This is the promise, not just that Jesus was willing to die and be raised and bring new life, but we as his children are called to follow that pattern of death and resurrection. And so as we sit here and we contemplate the death of a church, the death of a community, some relationships that, that may change uh, and may end, what is our hope? Well, it is much in every way because of the gospel. So what does the gospel have to say for us today? Four points. Ready? That's just the introduction. Here we go. Andrew said, hour 45. Here we go. Over-promise, under-deliver. What is it? under Anyway, it won't be that long. All right, first, the gospel invites us to grieve, to grieve our losses deeply and fully. I contend that we live in a world and we also live in a church that doesn't know what to do with emotions. We either run and hide from them, we self-medicate through alcohol or sex or work or service in the church or Netflix, whatever it is we do, we run away from what we're feeling. Why? Because if you felt deeply, it's scary. When you've really let yourself feel the losses in your life, it feels like a raging storm at sea. And it feels like it's going to drown you and take you down. And so, of course, it's not surprising that we would run from such things. Others of us give in to our emotions. We, we sell our souls to despair, to anger, and we feed it, and it grows, and bitterness becomes our name But the gospel invites us to something different. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, Jesus invites us to not be afraid. To not be afraid that our emotions will sink us, but neither do we need to enslave ourselves to them. But to sit with them. To look at them. To look them full in the face. To name them. 
and to feel them fully and bring them to the Lord. Sitting with the Lord in prayer, reflecting on whatever it is going on in your life, whatever losses or, or disappointments or anger or confusion going on in your life, Jesus invites us to go into them. A friend of mine pointed out this week uh, the denial of Peter. You're familiar with that? The Apostle Peter, kind of the uh, impromptu leader, the most outspoken and zealous, told Jesus that he would die with them, with him. Uh, and yet it was at that moment, at, at the moment of decision, that he denied Jesus, lied, gave the Messiah up, and watched him die. And the Gospels tell us that Peter went away when he looked at Jesus, and they, they locked eyes for a moment, and he remembered that Jesus told him that by the third, you know, crowing of the rooster, he would deny him three times. And the gospel writers all say that Peter went away and he wept bitterly. He felt the depth of his failure. He felt the reality of his weakness, his human limitation, and his sinful bent. And he wept. He didn't ignore it. He didn't run from it. He embraced it. And it was there that the Lord met him. After his resurrection, he came to Peter and three times... He restored him, asking, do you love me? And then instructing him to go and feed his sheep, tend his lambs, care for the flock of God. We, too, need to weep bitterly. Whether it's weeping at our own failures and weaknesses, whether it's weeping about uh, our disappointments and the death of dreams that we spent years working towards, whether it's the death of a loved one or any myriad of things. I love what Henry Nouwen says about this. He says, you can never get to the joy if you dare not cry, if you do not have the courage to weep, if you don't take the opportunity to experience the pain. This is counterintuitive. <laughs> this is the upside-down gospel. This is the J-curve. Um, another outstanding uh, poetic way of saying this, Gerald Sitzer in his, book, in his book A Grace Disguised says it this way. He says, the quickest way to the sun and the light of day is not west, not to run west chasing after it, but to head east into the darkness until you finally reach the sunrise. How many of us are chasing the sun? How many of us are running west and yet things grow dimmer and dimmer? Jesus invites us to head into the darkness with him. Through the valley of the shadow of death, he will be with us. He will meet us and he will heal us. All right, second, the gospel reminds us that suffering shapes us. If you're like me, you would rather never suffer a day in your life. Amen. Thank you. There's, there's an honest one. And if you're like me, you never want your children to suffer a day in their life. And yet, as we reflect on our own lives and as we look at the lives of those in Scripture and in history, it's often through the trials and through the suffering that depth of character is formed and depth of love for God is found. We could go through the Scriptures 
from top to bottom, Joseph's decades spent in unjust suffering and slavery and prison shaped him into the man who saved thousands from famine, including his own family members who sold him into slavery in the first place. The suffering of longing for children of Abraham and Sarah that they went through, and then enduring the years of waiting for the promise of a son to be fulfilled. Have you ever thought about that? They wait, they were, you know, Abraham was like 80 or 90 when God's like, you're going to have a son. And then it was another decade. You're like, God, you're like, like, what are you doing? Could have promised it like nine months beforehand. That waiting shaped Abraham and Sarah so that they became the mother and father of faith. Jacob wrestled with God after spending a lifetime longing for a name and an identity. And it wasn't fulfilled and caught until he wrestled with God through the night and God shattered his hip and he walked the rest of his life with a limp, reminding him of his new name, Israel. And we've already talked about Peter. How do you think it changed him as a pastor and as a leader to experience the depth of his own failure, the depth of his own weakness, his hypocrisy, his, his blowhardness, and then to experience in the midst of that the grace and the love of God to restore him and to send him back as the shepherd of the flock. I tell you today that he was a better pastor after that failure and restoration than he ever would have been if he had never experienced such a trial. And it's through our own losses that we come to experience and know so much of what the Bible says. And as we referenced earlier, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul expounds this incredibly beautiful theology that we who have suffered and experienced the comfort of God can now turn and give that comfort to others. We become a conduit of God's grace and God's comfort because of what we have suffered. The author of the book of Hebrews encourages us not to grow weary or faint-hearted by what we suffer in this life, but rather to see it as the work of a loving Father who is working in us, that we might share in His holiness. And when that work is finished, He, said, he promises that it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those, for those who have been shaped by it. God intentionally brings hardship and heartache and suffering into our lives to make us into the beautiful image of Christ. Just as Christ was perfected through his suffering, so too are we. And I can speak from my own experience. I have been able, uh, by God's grace, over this last year to minister to people and individuals in Marietta in ways I, I never could have, apart from the painful process of moving away from Village Church, resigning from the church that I planted and, and dreamed of pastoring for 30 years. I've never done anything more difficult than that. And yet God has been faithful through that process to bear beautiful fruit. And all I can do is rejoice and give him glory. And so, brothers and sisters, be open and curious to the ways God will use this time in the closing of this church or whatever else is happening in your life to shape you into the beautiful image of Christ. Third, the gospel instructs us to look ahead with hope. 
when we understand that life is for us, Jesus lived one big J curve, right? Death and resurrection. We live tens, hundreds, thousands of mini J curves. Some can last an hour, some can last months. But as we as we experience them and understand what they are, we can both receive present suffering with grace and we can look to the future with hope. If there is death, then there is life for God's people. If there is suffering, there will be comfort. We don't know how long the death will last and we don't know what resurrection will look like but we have God's promises that are yes and amen in Jesus, and they are true for us. And often it is going through the suffering that confirms those promises in our life. And sometimes we have to go, often we have to go through them in order to believe. Listen to Paul in Romans 8. He says, I consider the suffering of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul, who suffered greatly for the gospel, he said it, it is not to be compared to what is to come. Our future is great. And then he goes on to make this famous statement. And we know that for those who love God, we read this in our uh, reading uh, earlier. Can, I don't remember where. We read it in the service. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. God's purpose in your life is your good. The confusing thing is that it often takes a path through the valley of the shadow of death and we don't understand and that's why we have to run to the scriptures run to the lord in prayer and asking those hard questions because he will meet us he will meet you there and so look into your future beloved you may not even know where you're going to worship next week in church you don't know what the lord has in store for you you may be asking a lot of questions but your Father in heaven invites you to trust him and to look into the future with hope. Not so much hope for particular circumstances because we don't know what they are, but hope in the God who loves you and gave himself up for you. Whatever you're experiencing, look for resurrection. All right, fourth and finally, the gospel teaches us that nothing is wasted We've already heard this from others up front in prayers today. Uh, when something comes to an end, especially unexpectedly and unwantedly, it's easy to wonder, was it a waste? Why did we do all this? What was it for if it's come to an end? If you've never asked those questions, I have asked them for you. <laughs> if my dream, my vision, or my experience, uh, my expectations are not met, what did it all mean? I invite you to imagine yourself being one of the disciples of Jesus on Good Friday and Holy Saturday. What do you imagine that they thought? They had left father and mother, home and vocations to follow Jesus, whom they believed to be Messiah, the King of the Jews, who would come back and bring Israel to its former glory, wipe the floor with the, the Romans, and they would get to sit on his right and his left because they got in early. And then it all fell apart. He was betrayed by Judas. He was left by his disciples, crucified. 
I love the account of uh, Jesus appearing to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He knows that they are sorrowful and confused. They're walking home, dejected. But he doesn't appear to them and say, Hey, guys, I'm back just like I said I would be. What is wrong with you guys? He says, What are you guys talking about? And they say, Have you had your head in the sand? You're walking from Jerusalem just like us. Everybody knows what happened. Jesus of Nazareth, the would-be Messiah, died like a common criminal. He was patient. He listened as they poured out their hearts to him. And then he spoke. And he told them about the faithfulness of God and the pattern of the gospel that had gone through generations and that it was necessary for the Son of God to come and to die for the sins of God's people. And it wasn't until after the conversation and he broke bread with them and he disappeared that they realized that it had been Jesus whom they'd been with. That whole conversation, they thought they were just talking to some stranger who was dropping some real knowledge on them in their, matter, uh, in their time of confusion and need. They thought it had, had all gone horribly wrong. But Jesus said to them, this is what had to happen. Death had to come so that life could spread to the whole world. And beloved, God says the same thing to us day in and day out. Some things will die because life will spread and I'm doing a good work. And when you don't understand and when you're confused and when you're angry, come to me and I will listen. Pour out your heart, scream and ask questions and then I will speak quietly and patiently to your hearts and help you understand as long as it takes. This is our loving God and this is how he works in the world. Beloved, it's sad. This church is closing. And yet we can take the promises of God. I mean, most of us in this room have already been spread to the four winds, right? It's beautiful. It's such a, it's such a gift to be here with you and to see you. Thanks to everyone who came from far and wide. And it's beautiful to see those who have been here the last 18 months and given of their blood, sweat, and tears to maintain and to love this church. Jesus sees you. Jesus loves you. He celebrates with you. But he is blowing the seeds of the kingdom that were in our village church across the world. And life will spread. Trees will grow. And through you, other trees and other seeds will blow and the gospel will continue to go throughout the world and throughout time. As we close, I want to share a hymn with you that I've, I was introduced to years ago, um, but it's become more and more dear to me over the last couple years. It's by uh, a man named William Cooper. He was good friends with John Newton, the famous uh, British-English pastor. Uh, and William suffered with uh, chronic depression, severe depression all of his life. So this, this hymn held special meaning from the author. So listen, it's called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. 
God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frown behind a frowning providence there hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, what a strange sensation to have sadness mixed with joy, comfort uh, mixed with sadness. Lord, thank you for what you have done in and through your body in this place. Continue to do it. Give us faith and trust to run to you with our questions. Meet us there. Heal us, Jesus, we pray. Let us, give us eyes to see the beauty of your kingdom as it spreads uh, through your spirit and your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.